Acts chapter 1, verse 12, if you join me. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they had been staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. The scene. Let's set the scene. This is probably one of the most unique, bizarre periods of human history. On one aspect, you have the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry with his ascension. Jesus, his bodily uh, ascended into heaven, been received in this cloud. However, though Jesus' earthly ministry has come to an end, this new manifestation of the acts of Jesus through the church hasn't yet begun. Why? Because they would need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And so we have about a week here between the ascension and the pouring of the Holy Spirit that we're kind of in no man's land. They don't really know what to do other than the fact that they're just going to be obedient. They're going to go back to Jerusalem and they're in this waiting game. How long would it be? They don't know. A day? A couple days? A month? Jesus left them no specific timeline other than to go and to wait. And during this time, these believers, these followers of Christ, they're doing, they're occupying their time in three important ways. From our text, they're obeying Jesus' word. Jesus had spoke to them. It took a little prompting from two angels, but they were obedient. He said, return to Jerusalem. And they listened. They went back. And then Jesus said, wait. How long? They don't know. But they were obedient. Jesus, through his word, had given them commands. And they were simply obedient. They went back to the upper room in Jerusalem. This phrase, the upper room, indicates that it was an upper room that had already been introduced by Luke to his readers, the, the definitive, the upper room, something the audience should know about. It seems likely that where they're staying, where this about 120 people are residing for this week, was probably the same room that Jesus had shared Passover Seder with his disciples. So the first thing that they're occupying their time with is that they're just being obedient to the word. Jesus spoke, they listened, and then they were doers. The second thing we see that they were occupying their time with is that they were existing in community. Though we'll see that there's 120, Luke denotes a couple of Jesus' closest disciples being present, the remaining 11 apostles, the women who traveled with him, Mary, his mother, his brothers, they're all together. And he tells us specifically that these all continued with one accord. And we mentioned last Sunday that this word, this Greek word, one accord, it's a unique word. It's a special word. It describes literally the unique musical result that happens, that occurs when many unique, different notes are combined together in such a way that they harmonize in pitch and tone. The 10 times, the 10 of the 12 times that you see this phrase, one accord being used in the New Testament, you find it being used by Luke in the book of Acts specifically to describe the atmosphere of the first century church that they existed in one accord, that they harmonized together. Understand that the word doesn't mean that everyone to be unified became like each other. It's not as though that in, in order to unify, they had to let go of what made them unique or what made them distinct so that they could come, again, come together. No, the differences had to remain but it was the way that the differences came together, different personalities and different uh, uh, manifestations of their personalities. They came together to harmonize. And no, this is before the Holy Spirit, which tells me something interesting about harmony and unity within the fellowship. 
Yes, I'm sure that it is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, that we see the Holy Spirit helping in that. But note, they existed in community. Why? Because they chose to. They made a decision to get along, to love each other, to move beyond differences, and to exist in harmony. The third thing that we see these believers occupying their time with is that we're told that they prayed. They spent time in prayer. We're told that they continued in one accord with what? In prayer and supplication. Prayer obviously indicates that they were communicating to God. Supplication is a form of prayer. A supplication is a prayer that centered on making a specific request in both desperation and earnestness. What were they desperately praying to God for? Well, I can imagine that it was to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I wanna make an observation. These three characteristics, obedience to God's word, harmony and community, a dedication to prayer, they are foundational to what makes the church the church. We'll see in Acts chapter two, verse 42, after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that they continued, how? Steadfastly in the word, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread, community, and in prayer. It is a fabric to the DNA of the church. It's, well, part of the blueprint. Now, what comes next in the narrative of Acts has been the subject of a lot of debate on one aspect. The controversy we find in the last few verses of Acts chapter 1 is trivial. Kind of the things that kids with too much free time at Bible college bicker over. Was Matthias the 12th apostle or was it Paul? However, I am convinced that the subject matter, well, it's not included on accident. That Luke includes the subject matter in the last part of Acts chapter 1, not for us to argue about or bicker concerning, but he does so for a very important reason. Verse 15, in those days, so during this week-long period, between the Ascension and Pentecost, Peter, oh, Peter, he stood up in the midst of the disciples, the number being 120, and he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry now, he had purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. Thanks for that, Peter. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field and their own language is Akildama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Let's, let's unpack the text here. The topic of concern for Peter, the topic that he brings to everyone's attention, that as they're existing in harmony and community, being obedient to God's word, as they're praying and making supplications, waiting for the Holy Spirit that could come at any moment, Peter decides to take some action. He stands up and his concern is what should we do now with the apostolic position that had been left vacant by the death of Judas Iscariot. Now, following his betrayal of Christ for 30 pieces of silver, Scripture tells us that Judas, he recognized the severity of his sins. Matthew chapter 27 tells us then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, he was remorseful. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests, the elders, and he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Even Jesus' betrayer recognized his innocence. And they said, well, what do you want from us? You see to it. So he threw the pieces of silver in the temple. He departed. We're told that he went and he hanged himself. Now, Peter tells us that Judas, he hung himself, but he also says that he fell headlong and he burst open in the middle and on all that other stuff. His innards came out. Now, reconciling the two points. It could be that Peter is describing what would happen or what happened sometime after 
Judas had hung himself. In essence, Judas went out, he hung himself in this field, and he hung there, died, and he just began to rot. That no one cut him down, that no one pulled him down, that he just basically rotted, spoiled. Birds picking off the good parts until the rope loosened, the branch broke, or maybe his neck snapped. And he comes falling down, hits the ground, and his guts come out. Could be. That could be what Peter's telling us. It could also be, I heard a theory, that hanging as a form of death, suicide, execution was not common during this day. Um, The idea that Judas could have even gone out and hung himself in the way that we think of hanging might have been impossible. That the word that's used not only in Matthew, but in other places, could indicate that the form of hanging was actually impaling. That Peter found a big long stick, set it up, kind of did a swan dive on top of it, and that it split him in half, and thus his guts went spilling out. Wonderful thoughts here for a Sunday morning. Thank you, Peter, for bringing it to, his, to our attention. Either way, whether it's his guts came out because he spoiled and fell, or his guts came out because he impaled himself, we know that Judas was a lost soul. A couple verses later, in Acts 1, verse 25, we'll read that Judas, by transgression, fell. This by transgression fell is one Greek word that means to make a decision to turn aside from, that he made a decision to betray Jesus. He made a decision to kill himself. The text is clear that Judas's decision to betray Christ and kill himself was intentional and it was deliberate. And Peter correctly concludes from scripture that it was God's will for someone to fill Judas's place. Scripturally, Peter reasons that the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, for it is written in the book of Psalms. And then he quotes two places. Psalm 69, verse 25, to let his dwelling place be desolate and no one live in it. And then again, Psalms 109, verse 8, let another take his office. So Peter determines that it's important that God's will is for Judas's apostolic position to be replaced, that someone needed to fill it. And he reasons it from scripture, that this was God's will. You should note that this is the first instance in all of the Bible of Peter quoting scripture. It also seems consistent that it was necessary for there to be 12 apostles. One scholar commented, that the people of God had been arranged into 12 tribes. In choosing 12 disciples, Jesus was claiming the authority to reorganize the people of God, something that presumably only God could do. In choosing 12 disciples, he was also reorganizing the people of God around himself. The 12 tribes were organized in a sense around the patriarchs. In choosing 12 disciples, Jesus reorganized the people of God, not around anyone or anything but himself. This is why, for the Jewish disciples, there had to be 12 of them, which meant that Judas needed to be replaced with less than 12. The Jewish mind would have seen the people of God now as being incomplete because they understood the parallel that Jesus was making when he himself chose 12 disciples or apostles. We know, in regards to future prophecy, that this position would be replaced. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, we're told concerning the new Jerusalem that the walls of the city would have 12 foundations and on these foundations would be the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Replacing Judas. It was scriptural. It's a component of prophecy. It makes sense in regards to its its picture, but we also see that in replacing Judas, there was something unique. You know, they never attempt to replace any of the other apostles. As they would die over time, as they would be martyred for the cause of Christ, that we find no movement to then replace the apostle that died, that that these 12 men 
filled a unique role that only they were to fill. And thus, when one of them would die, it wasn't as though there was a vote or a move to fill the role. See, one of the problems that I have about the the Roman Catholic position of the apostolic position of Peter, aka being the Pope, being passed down in sequence is that there's no example in scripture of the blueprint for that. That there's no example of it. They had to replace Judas for one reason. There was a position. But once that was filled, there would then be no need to fill the other ones. Now, Peter's statement here, it does illustrate for us a view on how these men viewed scripture. How the church viewed scripture, how the first church viewed scripture. First, it's clear that they believed that scripture was inerrant. Peter opens his dialogue by saying, scripture must be fulfilled. This phrase, must be fulfilled, is one Greek word, pleiro, which means to render full or to complete it. Inerrancy refers to the belief in the permanent nature of scripture. And explaining Judas's actions, Peter implies that his death was foretold by Scripture, and thus replacing him would be the fulfillment of Scripture. Though Judas acted on his own accord, his actions didn't spoil God's plan, but rather fulfilled God's plan, that Scripture must be fulfilled, that Scripture is inerrant. We also see that they believe Scripture was inspired. Peter continues, he says, the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, second, third person of the Trinity, spoke before by the mouth of David. Inspiration. Please note what it doesn't mean. Inspiration doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit sparked like a creative impulse within the authors of Scripture. Like that they were just chilling one day with some incense and some candles late at night and that the Holy Spirit inspired them in the sense that they got this creative bug per se. No. Instead, inspiration means literally that which is breathed within. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter kind of expounds on what he means here. He says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as what? They were moved by the Holy Spirit. This phrase, as they were moved, it's the Greek word Pharaoh, which means... Literally, a person who's being carried about in a ship over a sea. The Holy Spirit moved them, filled them, breathed within them. And thus the Holy Spirit is speaking through a human conduit. As Peter says, though David uttered these words in the book of Psalms, it was what? The Holy Spirit moving through him to say the things that he said. The Holy Spirit spoke through David. So first, they believed that scripture was inerrant and inspired, but we also see that they believed scripture was literal, that it was literal, that Judas, his position was to be filled. And so they took it in a literal fulfillment and then they acted according to the literal fulfillment. So inerrant, inspired, and literal. Now, Peter, Peter was indeed correct. He was correct, absolutely, that scripture required a replacement to fill the betrayer's apostolic position. However, it's my opinion that what comes next is kind of where, well, Peter begins to kind of go off the rails. He says in verse 21, therefore, and anywhere you see a therefore, the question you should ask is what is it there for? It's connecting the previous thought with the current thought. Therefore, because scripture has told us that this needed to happen, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two. 
Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice. That's a lot of names for one guy. And Matthias. And they prayed. And they said, you, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. Now, the first mistake. Scripture was clear, right? Judas filled an apostolic position. Judas made a mistake. He fell. He discredited himself from fulfilling that position. So scripture was was evident that there would need to be someone to fill the role. But the first mistake that they make here is where then did scripture dictate that they were the ones to choose the replacement? Yes, a replacement would need to be chosen, but Peter makes an assumption that now this is their role. He correctly assesses a replacement is scripturally necessary, but it would appear from the text that the decision as to who would replace Judas would be God's to make and not the remaining apostles. So first, like where did scripture tell them that this was their job? Secondly, (laughs) when did Jesus tell them or ask them to choose the replacement? Before ascending to heaven, Jesus had been really clear, right? On his instructions, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, And while you're waiting, pick a replacement for Judas. No. Never did Jesus give them the instruction that this was their job, that this was something that they needed to do. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit's poured out, go out and be witnesses to the world. Jesus never once commanded them to pick out Judas's replacement. Not to mention, we never find a record of Jesus ever telling them to concern themselves with this particular task. If what made the apostles unique is the fact that they were handpicked by Jesus himself, then wasn't it then logical that Jesus would shoulder the responsibility of choosing a replacement? I think so. The third mistake that they make, and this might get a little controversial here, but where had scripture established the apostolic criteria that Peter uses for choosing the replacement. See, Peter overextended his interpretation of what scripture said when he decided that it was their job to pick a replacement for Judas. But now, in establishing criteria for choosing the replacement, note, he gives zero, zip, zilch, nada, biblical justification for the two requirements he picks out of thin air. Peter concludes, therefore, of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must also be a witness with us of his resurrection. Peter decides that there's two criteria. We should pick out a replacement. And the replacement, because there's 120 people there, would have to fit one of two criteria, or both, really. First, the candidate had to have been with Jesus from the beginning. And Peter defines that, beginning where? From the baptism of John, which began Jesus's earthly ministry, to the day he was taken up from us, or the ascension. And we know, according to scripture, that though Jesus had the 12 and then had his inner circle of the three, the multitudes traveled with him. Whole group of women all the time. There's a point where he sends out 70 disciples to do ministry. And so they begin to, to say, well, in order to fill Judas's role, you have to be You've had to have been with us from the beginning. It's not as though you could have come in at some point in the intermediate. So you have to be with us from the start. And then secondly, they determined that the candidate had to be an eyewitness of Jesus's resurrection. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, I'll admit that these seem to be pretty good criteria, except for the fact that Jesus didn't necessarily mandate that criteria. And we'll see that with the apostle Paul, he doesn't fit the criteria. 
So what is Peter doing? He's providing an opinion without biblical justification, which I think is a mistake. The fourth mistake is where had they been taught to pray like this? He tells us that they prayed. So they've got Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and they say, you, O Lord, know the hearts of all. I love that phrase, by the way. The hearts of all is literally the discerner of hearts. It's a title for God. That God is the discerner of hearts. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell. Now, on one hand, you got to give them some credit. They decided to pray. Great. But that's about the end of it. Look at the substance of their prayer for a moment. They had determined, right, that there was only two guys that fit their criteria, Justice Matthias, and probably they were the only two that fit the criteria. It was the process of elimination. And now they come to God, and what do they do? They ask God to choose between the two people they had picked. Think about it. They say, God, you have two choices, A, Justice, or B, Matthias. Never once do they provide God a third option. C, none of the above. God, we decided you're going to pick this guy or that guy without ever saying, well, maybe it's neither of them. Jesus had instructed them in Matthew chapter 6, in this manner pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They don't pray like this, do they? They pick out some options. They present them, one or the other. Now, the fifth mistake that they make, I mentioned there's a lot of mistakes, is where had Jesus taught them to decipher God's will by casting lots? It would appear, and this might be an assumption, so they ask God, Justice Matthias, I think God doesn't respond. That, that the answer is, and so they're kind of like, did you hear anything? And they're like, no, did you hear anything? No, well, what should we do now that neither of us have heard anything? Well, let's throw some dice. That's literally casting lots. They're kind of like, all right. <sighs> but boom Matthias, you're it. Now, some have defended their action by saying they were just simply following the Old Testament priestly model for deciphering God's will. It is true that the high priest would, on occasion, use what was called the Urim and the Thummim, that there were instances where these two instruments, we know very little of, by the way, were used to somehow decipher what God wanted to have happen in a particular situation. But the problem, when choosing these men, Jesus' only mechanism for deciding who to pick was that he prayed before the decision, right? He didn't do what? He never cast lots. And he had been clear that he had come to abolish what? The, the, the old covenant. He fulfilled it. There was no longer a need for it. He came to establish a new covenant. No longer would humanity need to approach God using old methods of the Mosaic law. So you can defend their action by saying, well, they're just modeling the Old Testament, but Jesus had never done it. And he had told them, forget about that stuff. I've got establishing a new covenant. And he talks about the kingdom over the 40 days. So their fifth mistake is like, where did they have the justification for deciphering God's will in this way? I don't think they had it. So the question was Matthias the 12th apostle. I, I think you can conclude that, that my assumption here is that he wasn't. By the way, full disclosure, for years and years and years, I always defended Matthias. And it was only until preparing for this morning's message that I totally changed my position. Those that say yes, Matthias is the 12th apostle. They argue that scripture affirms that Matthias was indeed the replacement for Judas. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, look at it. You read that Peter, standing up with whom? The 11. Wait a second. 
Peter plus 11. That's 12. So clearly, who's with him? Not Paul. It's Matthias. Then again, in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, we're told that the 12 summon the multitude. So how can you say Matthias isn't the 12th apostle when the Holy Spirit seems to confirm it? Understand, the scholars will also defend Matthias' apostleship by pointing out that though he's never mentioned again in Scripture, which he's not, and people will say, well, Matthias is never mentioned again in Scripture. How can he be the 12th? By the way, nine of the other apostles are never mentioned again in Scripture. So it's like, if Matthias' apostleship's in question on that criteria, then we got nine other dudes that have an issue. Poor Bartholomew. Luke, what is he doing? He is presenting a historical document to Theophilus. That's our whole premise here, right? So he's presenting a historical document to the Roman official in charge of Paul's trial. And whether or not that God recognized Matthias as the 12th apostle, as the replacement for Judas, it's not Luke's concern at all. Like that's not his concern. You see, the fact of history is that the 11 remaining apostles did indeed choose Matthias, and he was considered the 12th apostle during the apostolic church. So in saying that Peter stood up with the 11 or, or the 12 summoned, Luke is writing history, and the history is true that the church had looked at Matthias as the replacement based on Acts 1. But does that mean that God recognized it? And I don't think so. You see, I am of the opinion that the apostle Paul, that Paul was indeed God's replacement for Judas all along. You know, Paul and Peter would go back and forth all, often. Place that in context with what then Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, when he says that he is, quote, an apostle, not of men, nor through man, which I think is a total dig at Peter. You chose who you thought was. I'm not an apostle from man or by man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then Paul and his greetings to Romans, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, he refers to himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ by what? The will of God, not the will of Peter. He seems to indicate that he was chosen to be an apostle when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, that when last of all Jesus was seen by me also as one born out of due time. You see, 15 years after the ascension, when Paul is on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him. And it would seem that Jesus could have possibly appeared to Paul even after the fact and specifically chose him to be an apostle which makes sense. They're his apostles, not Peter's. And Romans 11, verse 13, and 2 Timothy 1, verse 11, Paul mentions that he was distinct from the other apostles. He explains why he was maybe called out of due time in the sense that he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. You know that there was a son of Judah born out of due time. And his name was Benjamin, the last son born out of due time while they were in old age. 12 sons, 12 tribes, 12 men to be 12 apostles. The last, Benjamin. Do you know of the tribe that the apostle Paul came from? He came from the tribe of Benjamin. Now the meaning. Let's discover the meaning of the text. Like, okay, Zach, that's great. Glad you picked on the apostles. Bored me with a little bit of Matthias and Paul. Cool. Now what's the point? I think the point is twofold. See, first, there is an important lesson in this text as to how we should make decisions. 
Like, why is this included? Well, I think it's included because it teaches us about making choices. I hope that you're already aware, it's obvious, that it will be difficult for you to make smart decisions when it comes to your life if you are A, guided by fleeting emotions. People that make decisions totally based on emotions often make really dumb decisions. So if you make decisions by changing emotions, your life will be a roller coaster because that's how emotions work. Also, you will find yourself making sometimes the wrong decisions if you're only driven by stoic logic. You'll make the wrong decisions if you react to difficult circumstances. If you make decisions without thinking, only reacting impulses, you'll make the wrong decision. If you make the choice by following your carnal desires, or if you rely solely on the advice of counselors, you know the advice of counselors, we will go and find someone to give us the counsel we want. Most of the time we've already made up our mind what we wanna do, and we just go find the person that will affirm that. Hey, I really feel like I should leave my wife. I'm not gonna go to church and ask my pastor for some counsel, because I think I know what he's gonna say. So I'm gonna to go to my drinking buddy who's been divorced five times and see what he has to say about it. You see, if you're only making decisions off of counsel, then you'll make the wrong decisions. Or if you succumb to pressures, the pressures of society, the pressures of culture, those are obvious, right? I don't need to illuminate any new thoughts on that, but our text this morning, it does illustrate a few more that maybe you haven't considered. You see, it will be equally difficult for you in making decisions and following God's will for your life if you, as Peter, reinterpret God's word. You see, the whole problem here is that Peter was right on with his literal interpretation of what the word was saying. There's an office that has been vacated and that will need to be filled. But where did he make a mistake? He made a mistake by reading into scripture what scripture didn't say. It didn't tell him that it was now his job to pick the replacement. He read that into the text. And so often, we will twist scripture to justify our decisions. You see, if you want to follow God's will for your life, if you want to live in connection with God and having him illuminate the next step and decision after decision, then you need to not go to scripture to try to justify whatever you want, but you need to let scripture justify to you what you should do. You don't go to scripture. You let scripture come to you. See, Peter made a mistake by reinterpreting God's word, by not literally obeying what God was actually saying. But we also see that the poor decision here, it was an action to a non-answer. They, they prayed in the wrong way, which we do that all the time, don't we? We have in our minds what we really think we need. And we come to God and we do the same thing, God, A or B without giving him the option of, of, of answering, I don't want either of those for you. You see, we, we in our own sense, we pray that our will might be done in heaven versus God's will being done on earth. We're trying to kick down the pearly gates and say, God, A or B. When God's like, both are bad. <laughs> and instead, back up and wait. You see, I think when we pray like that, we have a really hard time figuring out what we should do because God is not saying anything. Because he wants us to come to him wanting his will, not ours. You see, they, they were impatient because they failed to pray correctly. But we also see that you'll never make decisions, correct decisions, if you roll dice. Now, now, that's not like an anti-gambling point. My point, we phrase it in a different way. You've probably heard it. Throwing a fleece. It goes all the way back to Gideon. Well, God, I think you want me to do this. 
So in order for me to know for real that that's what you want me to do, then now I want you to do this. If you do that, then I'll know you want me to do this. We give God either ors, conditions. They roll dice. You see, why do you need to throw a fleece when you can come and speak to God? Why do we imagine what your marriage would look like if you made decisions with the spouse on throwing fleeces? Like it's much easier, by the way, to just go talk. You can kind of hash it out that way. You see, the problem is rolling dice never leads us to an appropriate conclusion. You see, I'm convinced that God included this story in Acts chapter one to illustrate that there is no replacement in the life of the believer to the power of the Holy Spirit. He wanted us to see why they needed the Holy Spirit. The big lesson. The primary key to making godly decisions is for you to make sure that your life is in step with the Spirit of God. Which means, before you make any big decisions, let me give you some advice. Align yourself with the Spirit of God. Make sure that your life is in sync with the Spirit. But I think there's another lesson that we we can pull from this text, and that is the appropriate use or utilization of natural gifts. It's interesting. I don't know if you've picked up on it. The whole story begins how? Peter. Peter jumps to the forefront. Like, who made Peter the leader? Like, at what point was that the, 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 the gig? You see, the reality is that Peter stepped up to lead because Peter was a leader. That was in his DNA. He was a leader. Now, he had the tendency to act foolishly, but his natural leadership gifting, it was always evident in the Gospels. You see, whenever there's a list of the disciples that you'll find, Peter's always number one, and you'll always see in the rest of the book of Acts, Peter leading. It's because that's what he was gifted to do. He was a leader. You see, I believe that the reality is that Acts chapter one exists, these verses exist, to show us what Peter looked like leading under the power of his natural gifting, or we'll just call it the flesh. Whereas in Acts chapter two, Peter will surrender his natural gifting to the power of the Holy Spirit and the results will be radically different. It is a matter of fact that when an individual experiences the indwelling spirit of God, a radical transformation takes place within the individual. The natural passions, desires of the old man are replaced with a heavenly passion and a desire for the new. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And though I'm not, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't work however he wants to, because I believe he does, I do think that the majority of the time, the Holy Spirit equips us not with supernatural gifts foreign to our psychological makeup, but by providing a supernatural infusing of the gifts God has already equipped us with from birth. Though we are a new creation filled with the Holy Spirit, we are still a manifestation of what our genetics have dictated us to be. Throughout much of the 20th century, there was what was called the blank slate theory. It was a popular idea in behavioral sciences that denied the biblical concept of human nature and instead theorized that people are born without mental content and that a person's brain structure is developed from birth by socialization, parenting, culture, and experience. The idea was very popular for its political and social results. They were appealing. You see, if human beings begin as a blank slate, then every human being is intrinsically equal, making it then theoretically possible to perfect humanity through what we call social engineering. Recently, a chorus of detractors have emerged. In 2001, geneticists successfully unraveled the entire text of the human genome. 
Since then, scientists have been able to show that our genetic code directly influences traits, conditions, even actions. A new study that came out theorizes that they're beginning to discover a second language within DNA that they never even knew existed. It's very complicated. The implications of these discoveries were radical. Scientists began to ask, do human beings begin with a blank slate only to be shaped by nurture? Or are we actually shaped by nature? Are we born aggressive, violent, greedy, or do we become that way from environment and experience? Are individuals what they are because that's what their genes have programmed them to be? Or is it because of influences and choices? In 2002, Harvard professor Steve Pinker wrote a controversial book called The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. In it, he argues that all humans are not born absent of a human nature or this blank slate, but are instead genetically equipped with some innate biological traits that make them who they are and dictate what they're then capable of accomplishing. Pinker wrote, of course genes can't pull the levers of our behavior directly, but they do affect the wiring, the working of the brain. And the brain is the seat of our drives, temperaments, and patterns of thought. Each of us is dealt with a unique hand of tastes and aptitudes like curiosity, ambition, empathy, a thirst for novelty, security, a comfort level with the social or the mechanical or the abstract. Some opportunities, he said, that we come across click with our constitutions and then set us along a path in life. As one review stated, Pinker urges us to accept realistically that much of our conduct and feelings are rooted in the physical nature that is given to us. Ironically, they use this word and they're evolutionists. Who's giving it to us? Rather than coming from a mysterious entity called society or appearing from nowhere. Nature is a rich and legitimate heritage, not an extraneous tyrant. Pinker asserts that not only are human minds predisposed to certain kinds of learning, such as language, but that from birth, our minds, the pattern in which our brain cells fire, predispose us to each think and behave differently. Along the same school of thought, a, a woman by the name of Judith Rich Harris, she wrote a book titled The Natural Assumption, Why Children Turn Out the Way That They Do. And in the book, she challenges the entire notion that the personality of adults is directly determined by the way they were raised by their parents. She believes that nature or genetics determines more about a person than nurture or as she'll later define environment. To substantiate her position, she points out that the studies which claim to show the influence of parental environment, they fail to take into account genetic influences. I'll give you a quick example. If aggressive parents are more likely to have aggressive children, that's not necessarily the fact that there's an aggressive household or environment. It could be that the parents are genetically predisposed to be aggressive and they've passed their genes down to their kids. So their kids are naturally then aggressive. Is it necessarily the home environment or is it the biology that gets passed from one generation to the next? Recent studies have shown that many adopted children show little correlation with the personality of their adopted parents and instead demonstrate a significant correlation with the natural parents who they had no part in the child's upbringing. Now, while her finding suggests that the powerful role of nature exists, other studies do present evidence that there is some aspect to nurturing that does help. Identical twins who share the same genetics we know aren't the same people. So it's not just biology. It could be nature plus, well, something else. You can call it nurture, or you can call it environment. You can call it peer groups. We'll leave that loosely defined. Now, here's my point. A great example of all of this, and we're wrapping it up, is that a combination of nature and nurture produces leaders. Best estimates offer 
uh, by research suggests that leadership, at the moment, they've determined is one-third biology, nature, and two-thirds made or nurtured. Scientists claim that there are raw materials that people are born with that predispose them to be and become leaders. Inborn characteristics like extroversion, boldness, assertiveness, risk-taking, empathy, intelligence. That's why we call it a natural-born leader. Peter exhibits many of these naturally. His biology presents in that way. And yet, it was essential for Peter that he was A, influenced by Jesus, that there was a nurturing, that there was an environment that he learned from Jesus' example, and maybe even more important than that, that Peter learned to submit his natural gifting to the power of the Holy Spirit, that he learned to submit what he was naturally gifted to do and to be to the Holy Spirit so that God could accomplish his will through him. Here's my question for you this morning. This is where we'll leave it. What natural gifts has God given you? Like, what are you naturally good at? What has God wired into you from birth? We are told that he knew you before the foundations of the world. So God has made you and equipped you, hardwired you with strengths and abilities and even weaknesses. You see, the things that you're good at, what you need to learn is that you can go out in your natural gifting and you'll still act a fool like Peter. But if you take those natural gifts and you come to God and you say, I want to surrender my flesh, my nature to you for a new nature, the Holy Spirit, natural giftings brought under the power of the Holy Spirit yield supernatural results. So instead of necessarily coming to God and saying, give me gifts, instead ask this question, what are my gifts? And then come to God and say, I want to surrender these to the power of your spirit so that you can maximize the results. I think in context to what we see play out, it's so important for the decisions that we make and the giftings that we've been equipped with that we're constantly being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, 